electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Sarah, thank you very much. Welcome, everybody, to Overtime. I'm Scott Wapney. You just heard the bells. We're just getting started here at Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. In just a little bit, I'll speak to Fundstrat's technical ace, Mark Newton, whose new note is all about the state of the tech wreck and whether it is about to get worse. He will tell us what the charts are telling him. We begin, though, with our talk of the tape, whether the Fed is about to send stocks into a tailspin by raising rates too much too fast. That is the call from some of the world's biggest investors. But is it right? And what does it mean for your money? Let's ask Dan Greenhouse. He is Solus Alternative Asset Management's chief strategist right here on set with me at Post 9. Um, is that one of the issues we need to worry about today, the Fed doing too much? First, it was like they're not doing enough. Now they got serious. Now it's like they're doing too much. Some are saying that. Do you agree? Sure. Well, admittedly, from the beginning, the risk was if you allowed, intentionally or otherwise, inflation to, quote unquote, get out of control, then the risk was that you would have to do a lot to bring it back into uh, something resembling a, a, a reasonable level. And, and the, the, your ability to do that is constrained without causing damage throughout the economy. This was the argument put forth from day one by a whole host of people, Mohamed El Arian, Olivier Blanchard, um, and largely speaking, that, that has come to pass. Well, I mean, it's gotten louder uh, lately, right? Barry Sternlick today on, on Squawk Box said the economy's breaking hard. These are his exact words. Miserable CEO confidence. Rate hikes could spark a major housing crash, a serious recession in the fourth quarter. I spoke with Jeffrey Gunlock out in California this week. Here's what he said about what the Fed's doing. Thanks to the thing today, I might do 25. Uh, if, you, if we had this interview yesterday, I would have said do nothing. But, you know, I think you do it, I would do 25. Because they haven't waited long enough to see what the impact of the, the hikes that they've already done yeah. Yeah, right. are going to have. Right, it's oversteering. Right? They do, he wants them to do, he really wants them to do nothing after he got the CPI surprise. He said, all right, I can deal with 25 uh, if, if they have to. What do you think? This monetary policy operates with long and variable legs is a saying for a reason. Uh, obviously, it has a more direct and immediate impact on financial conditions, a.k.a. stock prices and credit spreads. But its ability to impact the economy at large tends to take anywhere, we don't know for sure, but let's say 12 to 18 months. So, so underlying what I'm sure is Jeffrey's argument is that mo monetary policy that's been inflicted on the economy so far hasn't really impacted the economy as of yet. It's it hasn't. Take I mean, isn't he right? Well, housing is in bad shape, certainly in a lot of pockets of the economy. The manufacturing sector is slowing down. But I brought up, I brought up, I want to make a point here. I brought a picture with me. Can we, can we throw it if we have it? Throw um, it up if we have it. So, so Jay Powell keeps referencing Paul Volcker as uh, sort of a, 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 a someone that, in whose path he would want to follow. Yeah. And I think it's gone unnoticed by the market. In his speech, uh, in Jack I'm sorry, in his speech in Jackson Hole, he mentioned how he's going to keep at it two times. Uh, two times he said he's going to keep at it. He spoke to Cato Institute the other day, and one of the last things he said was he's going to keep at it. This is the title of Paul Volcker's book called Keeping At It. And I don't think this is an accident. No, that, he mentioned Volcker specifically yes, in, in, in Jackson Hole. He's, he's mentioned Volcker. I don't think the market is giving credit. When Jeffrey says he should raise 25 basis points, and there are other people who make the case, uh, not without merit, that, that they should sort of slow down 
this is an important point that Jay Powell is both consciously and subconsciously trying to send to the market. Well, the, the point is that Volcker, when he raised rates, he kept them high for a long time. The, the Fed, for all intents and purposes, has just started on this raising rate the thing, right? QT has just really gotten going. And, and has it really? I mean, because the way Treasury maturities work, it's not really until today when you're going to see, if you do, and I have to check the maturity schedule, any serious roll-off of the balance sheet. But, but yes, it is, it is accurate to say that um, Paul Volcker le- raised rates, well, the second time, raised rates and left them there for a while. Uh, that's what's presumably going to be the case now, because even if the Fed gets up to call it four or four and a quarter percent by the end of this year, the CPI, which isn't their preferred measure, but the CPI is probably still going to be five to six percent or so. Uh, you, you, you're not, you don't even have the Fed funds rate above the inflation rate, right. which is something that a lot of people believe that you need to do. So then what does this all mean for the person who's sitting there watching, wherever they're watching, what does it all mean for stocks? Because I've got Ray Dalio today comes out and says, if rates rise where they are to about 4.5%, you got a 20% negative impact on equity prices. Scott Minard last week in overtime right here was suggesting you could get a 20% decline in stocks by mid-October. I asked Gunlock directly about that. He's like, yeah, I, I agree with that. 20% sounds right. I don't know about mid-October, but he's got a target of 3,000 on, on the S&P 500. Is that what we need to start worrying about? Like declines of that magnitude? Well, first of all, I don't know Ray or Jeffrey, but I know Scott, and Scott, I think the world of, uh, I, I would put myself in that camp, and I've been making that case uh, with you for six or nine months now. We're probably going to test the lows, and we will probably make new lows somewhere in that 3,000 to 3,500 range. Why? The answer is, as as we discussed earlier, you haven't seen the broad-based economic weakness nor profit weakness that's probably going to materialize later this year and early next year, uh, the combination of which will probably necessitate an additional decline in stock But see, this is the conundrum, then, for those who I suggested are are watching us, right? The, The investor out there who says, okay... Dalio, Gunlock, and Minard are all negative, but I'm a long-term investor. So if they're right, then I back the truck up when the stock market goes down. And if I'm a long-term investor anyway, maybe I don't really care what they say. Maybe I care more about what Brad Gerstner of Altimeter told me today on halftime. Let's listen to what he said. We can react on the other side. If you need to make money over the next 90 days, it's a pretty treacherous place to be. But if you want to find great companies that you can compound in, over the next three to five years, we think this is a very fair place to enter uh, those names compared to last fall that we all know the multiples were quite high. Okay, what about that? Well, sure, and listen, the network is littered with RIAs who are gonna tell you- This guy's not an RIA, I know a successful not an, fund manager. Yes, I understand that, but I'm saying there are numerous people on the network who are gonna come on properly and say, well, if you're not retiring tomorrow, what's the difference, bye, bye, bye. And truthfully, if you don't need your money for 30 years, that's probably accurate. We're an active fund manager. We, we manage risk. We are yeah, much well, more. So does Gerstner. I understand that. And we would also argue if you don't need your money for three to five years and great, but we have investors, we have LPs that are going to say you're down 20%. We're not going to make it to three to five years. So does and Gerstner. I, well, then I can't speak for him or his LPs. I can only tell you my point of view, which is there's a lot of people who manage a lot of money in this market that can't bear 20% drops in their AUM. It's but he doesn't necessarily think that you're going to go down 20% from here. He's covered all of his shorts. One of the principal questions I would have is now the time to cover your shorts or batten down the hatches. That's ultimately what this conversation comes down to. You either believe Dalio, Gunlock, and Minard that you're going to have a big decline in stocks, or you, it sounds like you agree with, with them, that you could go down to, to retest the lows, you go lower, or you say, you know what, the stock market has already corrected a lot. And you know what? Maybe the Fed is going to wait 
And they're, they're going to wait and they're going to raise, you know, next week, but then they're going to wait and see. And they'll let the market digest that. And maybe it's already in the market enough that if you're a longer term investor, three, five year time horizon, that you do take advantage of some of these opportunities. Uh, three to five years from now, the stock market's almost surely going to be higher. Credit spreads will probably be similar to where they are, maybe a little tighter. I would not argue with that statement. But again, we haven't seen the broad-based economic weakness outside of housing that's likely to materialize. You've discussed that nauseam on this network with any number of participants, how corporate profits haven't come down yet. They're likely to continue doing so, although admittedly earnings have been, uh, energy earnings have been out, uh, uh, in the stratosphere, which has held things up a little bit. Um, but, but again, just do the simple math here. Put 14, 15 times on some reasonable EPS estimate for next year, and you have something in that 3,200, 3,500 level, which, when that economic and profit weakness materializes, is probably where we're going to end up. All right. Let's broaden the conversation. Let's bring in Anastasia Amoroso of iCapital, Peter Cicchini of Exonic Capital. It's great to have both of you with us. Uh, Anastasia, sitting right here uh, next to us as well. You've heard all, all of this. Which, which camp are you in? Are you with Team Dalio, Gunlock, and Minard, or are you on Team Greenhouse? And Greenhouse. And Greenhouse. No disrespect. No. no disrespect. So first of all, I don't think it's time to back up the truck right now and just load it all up and be risk on. And the reason why I say that is because I think the facts, some, cha- some facts have changed over the last really literally a week. We were all expecting that inflation had peaked and the Fed is going to at least ease off. But you know what? Inflation does not seem to be peaking. If you look at the CPI basket, we know that 70 percent of the CPI is annualizing at 4 percent. You've got shelter inflation. You've got, you know, you have the wage inflation. So we have not solve that. And the Fed is playing catch up. And I don't really know at what point they're going to stop. So as long as that's going to be the case, they might have to make hard, hard choice to make. Before, they were saying, we're going to try to have a soft landing and bring down inflation. Now, they may have to make a choice. It's either a soft landing or bring down inflation. In other words, they may have to engineer more of a crackdown in economic growth to bring down inflation. So if that's the case, then 37, 3800 is probably not it. And then I do agree with Dan. I'm in Dan's camp on that one, that we probably need to see the valuations reset to the level of 3,200, and then you would back up that truck. So maybe for now, you buy incrementally, but I wouldn't go all in. Okay. Peter, where are you on the markets? Which, which side, if you will, are you on? And by the way, just to be clear, Brad Gerstner is not saying come in and back up the truck at, at these levels either. It's looking at your portfolio, and if you think that things you love came down way too much, in his case, a snowflake, for example, Uh, you're willing to buy more because your time horizon is long enough that you understand that you can compound uh, the the growth that you have in companies that you like. So let's just be clear, uh, apples to apples uh, comparisons. What side are you on? Sometimes snowflakes fall to the ground and melt as well. Um, we got to keep that in mind. Uh, Dan, I've known for a long time. uh, He and I agree probably half the time. We're in the same uh, camp um, uh, just about precisely, in fact. But I think it's important to, to keep in mind that what investors uh, have come to expect um, during a 30-year secular bull market in bonds is for the Fed to be able to continuously cut the funds rate and for the secular decline in interest rates to support asset prices. And that's something that we don't have for two reasons right now. First, we have inflation, which is a cyclical force. Um, and a more persistent cyclical force, apparently, than the Fed thought. But we also have the zero bound, which we have hit. And so when we go into a recession, the second piece of this that needs to be considered is how much, once the Fed is done hiking, and I think that's, you know, four to four and a half percent, um, how much will the Fed be able to cut 
uh, in order to re-stimulate the economy. And typically, the Fed cuts 5 to 7% um, in order to jumpstart the economy. And it simply doesn't have that, that room this time uh, in the way it has in the past. And of course, it has QE now, so it can control the long end of the curve more effectively uh, in that manner. But I think those secular tailwinds are now behind investors, and investors need to think somewhat differently about asset allocation. And um, equities, I think, are going to struggle to come back the way that we've come to expect them once the Fed starts to cut. Well, expand on that then. If we need to think differently, people are going to hear that and say, hmm, how so? Uh, are you talking treasuries also as part of the 64? Yeah. I mean, what exactly yeah. are you talking about? Yeah, no, uh, certainly. You know, look, I mean, um, if if our target for the two-year of 4.5% is correct, um, you know, certainly the short end of the Treasury curve uh, will make sense at that point. And in fact, I'm starting to see some value in the long end of the Treasury curve because I think the curve will invert more and more deeply. I'm also seeing value in, you know, the structured product market in which we specialize. And in particular, there are a couple of um, sectors within structured products. We like Freddie Mac, multifamily SBL bonds um, in which we are investors. And the reason for that is because housing is quite unaffordable. Um, and we think that rents are going to continue to rise with inflation, at least for a time, until the consumer feels a little bit more stressed. But even then, people do tend to pay their rents. And so I think defensive positioning outside the equity market is going to be something real again. Whereas if you were not in equities for the past 10 to 12 years, you really, you know, you well, you made money in treasuries as well. But the real, the real juice was to be made in equities and in growth equities in particular. And I think that paradigm has changed. Yeah, and people, Anastasia, think, seem to agree with this idea. I mean, the, the, there is no alternative, is dead. Uh, he's on the gunlock trade, long-dated treasuries uh, as well, uh, something new for him. What about this idea of stocks versus bonds? Which I is the better place to be right now? I think it's a very relevant discussion, and that trade-off has changed significantly. The relative value is clearly emerging in bonds. I mean, if you look at the one to three-year part of the curve, you can get 3.8% in short-duration treasuries. That is very compelling. And I do tend to agree with a long-duration call as well. If we are starting to make the choice between a soft landing and inflation, and we think we're not having a soft landing but a recession, you want to go to the long end of the curve. Uh, but, Scott, you look at high yield, for example. That's trading north of 8% yield to worse, and it's higher up in the capital structure. So I do think it's a more defensive play. It's a way to get paid while you wait out this volatility. Let's face it, when cash is going to be paying you 4% and the dividend yield on stocks is just shy of 2%, the trade-off is clearly starting to shift towards bonds. Yeah. I mean, maybe you assume more risk. Unlock was talking about that too. Maybe bonds like uh, B, double B are, are a, more attractive, but you have to assume a certain level of risk. And he was very clear uh, about that. What about you? Yeah, right, we say soulless alternative assets, like you're not just talking stocks. Uh, what do you think about the bond trade right now versus the stock trade? No, like like Peter, and, and who works for Clayton over at Exxon, like, and they specialize in structured products. He said he only agrees with you half the time, by we, the way. He left the door open for at least half. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, no, we agree with about half the time. That sounds about right, uh, which is better than most people who usually don't agree with me at all. But, um, yeah, I mean, we do a lot of work uh, in, uh, across the capital structure, particularly in high yield. I think, you know, high yield yields as a sector about 8.5% right now. And obviously, the further down you go, the more yields you're going to pick up in commensurate with the additional risks that you're going to be taking. 
certainly uh, with respect to there is no alternative, traditionally we talk about it uh, on, on CNBC through the prism of the treasury market, but certainly the credit markets are much more appealing now than they have been in some time. That said, if you're asking me do I think equity or credit is a more attractive prospect over the next couple of years, I think equities are much closer to a quote bottom than credit is. I think there's a lot more spread widening. Uh, that has to go on in the credit market. Whereas the equity market, as we've discussed, when you're down 23, 24% at the lows, you've gone a, a long way to pricing in a pretty solid recession. And if you bought down there, call it a 3,500, 3,600, you did a pretty good job of, of accounting for probably most of the declines we're going to experience. Hey, Peter, uh, what am I supposed to do right now with growth uh, technology stocks? You know, the more rates go up, the lower these stocks seem to get. And that dynamic doesn't seem to want to change anytime soon. What's your outlook there? If you're negative on the overall stock market, I can't imagine your overall bullish growth. Yeah, no, that 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 would be correct. And and look to to uh, to disagree with Dan to to, to fit into that fifty percent mold. You know, I think uh, spreads have a lot of widening to do. But typically, you know, if they widen to thousand twelve hundred basis points on high yield, which they may or may not, given the composition of the CDX index right now. Um, you know, equities typically don't bottom until that widening is done. And, and like I think the 1970s are a, a pretty good analog here where we saw about a 47 percent drawdown in, in equities. And that's sort of what we're looking for. And I would imagine that spreads will widen around the same time. Um, but, yeah, relative to growth, I mean, clearly, you know, given given this outlook in this view, especially the tech, the uh, speculative technology names uh, that have traded on such high multiples, not only because of, of capital costs, people will start to think about earnings and cash flows again. This is what always happens, right? It goes from how much am I getting paid, how much capital appreciation will I get to this transition and this uh-oh moment where people say, oh my gosh, will I get repaid? Will this equity have value? And we certainly have uh, a long way to go before we get there, but unfortunately, I think that moment will likely occur at some point. Anastasia, I'm looking at the Nasdaq today, right down 167, nearly one and a half percent. Seems to be the focal point of much concern in the market. Uh, it is. Look, uh, the reality is for the tech stocks to do better here, we need to have a reason for multiple expansion. And we don't have a reason for multiple expansion right now. We have a reason for multiple contraction as the Fed hikes rate. Also, we need to see the EPS momentum turn the other way. And once again, as the economy is potentially headed lower, that's not the reason. But to come back to my initial comment on backing up the truck or not, again, I'm not in favor of buying all in today, but I think incrementally you can be finding value in some of these stocks. I think when investors do start to return to the market, and by the way, we're seeing hedge funds do this, they're not buying the the cyclical value type stuff because the economy is heading the other way. They're going back to what they know best, which is secular growth, which is all things digital transformation, healthcare, and sustainability stocks. A lot of those have corrected 50 or 60%. And by the way, Scott, if you don't want to take that market mark to market risk in public equities, you look to private equity. You look adventure and i think we'll see several quarters uh, valuation resets ahead there all right we will leave it there uh peter thank you so much anastasia and dan greenhouse right here on set with me my thanks to you as well let's get to our twitter question of the day now halfway through september we want to know which of these beaten down names has the biggest upside ahead is it adobe which is down 17 percent this month or nvidia Nucor, or valero you can head to at cnbc overtime on twitter cast your vote we'll share the results coming up later on in our hour. And we're getting some news out of Washington right now. Eamon Javers has the story for us. Eamon. 
Scott, I just got off the phone with a senior official at the Department of Justice and people who are working inside American companies who are contemplating doing some wrongdoing uh, might want to pay attention here because they are changing a lot of internal rules over the Department of Justice. We're going to get an announcement this evening about a crackdown on corporate crime enforcement inside the Department of Justice. They're trying to change the situation where companies have historically often been able to simply pay a fine, get a non-prosecution agreement and move on in the case of corporate fraud. Now the DOJ says they want to go after individual executives inside these companies. They want to go after executive compensation clawbacks. They want to incentivize companies to turn over the names of individual in executives who were responsible for the fraud here. Uh, and they're trying to make sure that these non-prosecution uh, agreements don't happen again and again and again. They're sending a message to corporate America here saying that if you have a non-prosecution agreement and you commit more fraud, do not expect to come back to the Department of Justice and be able to negotiate another one. The next one will likely be a guilty plea. So a whole host of changes here from the Department of Justice. All of this expected to be announced at 5.30 this evening by the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco in a speech in New York, Scott. Just a preview of what's coming. Yeah, appreciate you getting us ahead of that. That's Eamon Javers in Washington for us. Well, we're just getting started here in overtime. Up next is the tech wreck about to get a whole lot worse. Funstrat's top technician, Mark Newton, joins me. What he's seeing in the charts. Later on, we're counting down to the Fed decision. What is at stake for your money? We discuss with portfolio manager Avery Sheffield. That's right here at Post 9. We're live from the New York Stock Exchange. OT back in two. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Back in overtime, the S&P 500 is setting up for another leg lower possibly pushing below 3,700 over the next couple of weeks. That is the big call today from Mark Newton. He is Fundstrat's global head of technical strategy, joins us once again. So we've been visiting with you a lot lately to try and get a read on the charts because things change so quickly. I did notice today, though, S&P closed above 3,900. What's the significance of that before we get to part of your note? No significance, Scott. S&P, uh, NASDAQ, and the Dow actually closed at the lowest levels in more than a month. Uh, gold closed at new two-year lows. We saw the 10-year yield almost closed at new highs for the year. So, you know, hibernation is officially over uh, yet again, at least for now. So where are we going? Well, I think in the next three weeks, we're in seasonally the most difficult part of the year. So S&P likely is going to pull back to near 3685, in my view. Uh, you know, I see it proving short-lived because I think yields are close to peaking out. And so it's not going to be right to really avoid technology. Uh, if anything, you want to wait for that pullback over the next few weeks and consider buying dips 
uh, in technology and stocks and also in bonds and commodities. Uh, for the time being, though, it's cash is king, and it's really right to be in, uh, in king dollar and, and cash. I mean, those are really the two safe havens. Cash, cash is, is, is trash, is what Ray Dalio uh, once said. I'm sure he has a different opinion of that now, considering he thinks now stocks can go down 20%. I mentioned Gunlock Miner. They're all in, in the camp of big decline coming. Why aren't you? Well, a lot of that has to do with sentiment and with cycles, and most of those start to turn up pretty dramatically, uh, or at least cycles do in the month of October. Um, sentiment right now is bearish, but we haven't really truly seen evidence of capitulation, and I think we'll probably get there sometime over the next few weeks on further uh, deterioration. Uh, you know, our own Tom Lee has talked about the fact that, you know, six out of nine regions representing about 75% of, uh, of, of GDP actually saw outright, outright deflation. Uh, last month, and a number of different CPI components are, you know, well down off 18-month uh, highs. So, you know, that's something that the Fed simply isn't taking into consideration. They're looking at past data. Uh, none of us know what these interest rate hikes, what the effect will have uh, in the future. It takes some time for these to work out. So, you know, in my view, I, I think that I'm a no economist, but I think the Fed is going to be forced to pivot sometime in the next couple months, or at least, you know, take their foot off the gas a little. In, in the next couple of months. I mean, look, let's be honest with one another. Tom's been way too bullish. Um, and I know, you know, you, you have the name of the firm behind you and whether you will suggest that or not, uh, the facts are the facts. Tom has been way too bullish. The, the bear market is still intact. Um, the trend is still lower. And there's nothing necessarily yet to suggest that it's about to change anytime soon. How do you counter that? We are in a cyclical bear market as part of a secular bull market. And I think that, uh, you know, my own take, and which is similar to Tom's, is that uh, the final quarter of the year is going to be positive. Um, you know, we both came into this year thinking there could be turbulence and, and really a rough first half, and then we would rebound. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Tom's point of view and time frame is certainly a lot longer than a lot of the day traders that are looking at a two or three week time frame. And so, you know, I, I agree with a lot of his data points that say inflation is going to start to pull back pretty dramatically. And my own cycles start to turn higher from October through the end of the year. And whether or not we pull back early next year, we're going to save that for the year end forecast. And, and we could pull back a bit more. But the next couple of years, I think, are going to be quite positive. So, you know, I'm not sure what the what the fundamental catalyst is going to be. Either inflation starts to pull back dramatically. We see some evidence of a ceasefire in the war or, uh, you know, who knows? But but technically, you know, people are bearish. The B of A report said that investors right now, over 50 percent of investors have underexposure to stocks. Uh, we're clearly seeing, you know, bearishness not only from retail, but also institutional investors, which have clearly been caught, you know, flat footed. And everybody right now is negative. And I just don't think these negative earnings revisions have to happen right away. So, you know, my thinking is give it three, four weeks. We're going to bottom out. And uh Market should be higher by year end. Okay. All right. Good stuff. I appreciate the conversation as always, Mark. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, That's Scott. Mark Newton, FundStrats technician, joining us there. Up next, navigating the uncertainty. Top portfolio manager Avery Sheffield with us reveals her forecast for stocks, how she's trading this volatility. So join us after the break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, 
and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, welcome back to Overtime. We have breaking news on FedEx, our Frank Holland with those details. What do we know, Frank? Well, hey there, Scott. Right now, watching FedEx shares are down almost 2% right now. The company issuing an earnings warning, citing some macro pressure that it's feeling uh, after a miss on, and then this early earnings warning, a miss on revenue and an even bigger miss on EPS, more than $1.50 below the estimate of 514 a share. Also, the company issuing some very weak EPS guidance for the current quarter, about half of what the street is looking for in EPS in Q2. CEO Raju Romanian on the release saying in part, global volumes decline as macroeconomic trends significantly worsen later in the quarter. Also adding that the impact of cost actions that lagged volume declines and operating expenses remain high relative to demand. While U.S. volumes worse off, the company says two of the biggest headwinds were the integration of the TNT delivery network in Europe. That was a factor in addition to COVID lockdowns in China, reducing Asia volumes longer than expected. FedEx is one of the biggest carriers out of Asia. FedEx will launch a number of cost-cutting moves, including reducing flights for its signature express air delivery service, cutting hours for workers, and closing about 90 FedEx office locations. Uh, shares of FedEx down now about 7% and falling right now. Uh, one, I guess, potentially bright spot, the company says it plans to uh, resume its share buyback plan, re- reaffirming that it will still do that. Again, shares of FedEx down more than 8% now. Scott, back over to you. You know, Frank, what's, what's interesting here is, as you describe these comments from the CEO, of the macro deteriorating quicker than they they thought. Uh, They just gave upbeat guidance a few months ago at the end of June, right? And that gives you an idea of just how bad things became much faster than they thought if they had such a a good view of of things uh, June 24th or or whenever that was. Yeah, I was there at their investor day, Scott. I'm definitely an optimistic uh, thought at that time, um, as they mentioned here in the release, that things kind of turned later in the corner. Also, there were assumptions that as COVID lockdowns eased in Asia, that things would move a little bit better. So far, that just quite hasn't happened, and the COVID lockdowns haven't eased as quickly as FedEx and many others have expected. The other point that I, that I want you to expand on, since you since you cover this this company closer than most, um, I noticed last last time they they announced their volumes were all down in their three main categories, but their prices were up. Right. Uh, across all three as well, offsetting some of the declines in, in volume. Are, are they running out of the ability to uh, to price? Have, have they have they lost their ability to raise their costs from, from uh, where, where they might otherwise want to? Well, Scott, absolutely. I mean, the the prices that uh, FedEx and many other carriers, just to be fair, in the transport industry have been able to cost, they're just simply on the decline. Volumes are softer, softer. Demand is not what it was. For example, uh, FedEx gets a, a significant portion of its revenue from air delivery. Well, air rates from uh, Asia to the U.S. West Coast, they're down 80 percent year over year, something that certainly impacts FedEx and the other air carriers. And you look at trucking rates. Those have fallen in the spot market. A lot of people have tried to lock up contract rates. Big retailers like a Walmart and a Target, they've locked it up in contract. But FedEx is the largest less than truckload carrier in the U.S. That's basically putting multiple loads on the same truck. So that certainly hit them as a lot of companies have locked up that contract. Um, it hits the, the ability of FedEx to have more pricing in the spot market. Yeah, interesting. We're seeing that stock uh, down uh, substantially. Uh, Frank, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. That's Frank Holland uh, with this breaking news uh, for us, this pre-announcement from FedEx, and it's decidedly negative, and that stock is uh, reflecting that. Should also note that the CEO of the company is going to be on with Jim Cramer later on on Mad Money. Uh, you won't want to miss that. 
Uh, so you get the exclusive from the CEO with Jim. Get to the bottom of exactly uh, what Mr. Subramanian is, uh, is seeing out there. Let's bring in halftime committee member now, Steve Weiss. He joins us on the news line. Uh, Weiss, I wanted you to come on. Uh, you used to own this stock. I, can't, I don't think you still do, uh, but what do you make of this? Yeah. Well, it's no surprise. Goldman actually, I believe this morning, had uh, said it's going to be a, a quarterly miss. And they were right. And uh, there's reason to be concerned because you have seen, as Frank pointed out, you've seen freight rates really come down substantially. And uh, it's this is sort of like an early indicator of what's happening with the rest of the economy. So there's ample room for caution. So I would think that investors have to take this to heart and rethink uh, what they what the bulls say are, is a strong economy, because it's simply not. Uh, in this situation, I, I sort of wonder what, was, what occurred in the handoff. So what Fred Smith, who is the outgoing CEO, still chairman of the board, I believe, and was the founder of the company, just an amazing individual, uh, was he too rosy and looking to leave on a high note? And you have a new CEO coming in, and is he setting the bar very low so that he can beat it going forward? Because that's what new CEOs will often do. Um, so, so I don't know if there's more here to meet the eye, if that's too Machiavellian. But the direction, regardless, is lower. If you take a look at UPS, that was trade down. I actually tried to short some, but it's already down too much in this announcement. Uh, where it impacts me is XPO Logistics, and that's sort of like a, a different kind of play because they're spinning off their brokerage business. So nonetheless, they've all been weak up to this point, and the dollar hasn't helped them either when they operate in other countries because of how strong it is going to maybe low maybe, characters instead. Forgive me, Steve. I, I'm sorry. Maybe, sure. maybe we can throw up, guys, uh, in, in the back. Uh, we can throw up XPO because I'm just curious as to whether that makes you uh, think about getting out of this entire space whatsoever. I had mentioned you prior owned or previously owned uh, FedEx. XPO has been a, a, a long time holding because we have discussed it on numerous occasions. In fact, it's down about 3%. Um, in, in overtime as well, uh, Steve, did it make you want to get out of the whole space? No, I, I mean, yes, if I didn't own XPO for a particular reason, and XPO is cheaper than FedEx number one, number two. Brad Jacobs, who I've said before, has created tremendous value by spinning out assets and spinning out the brokerage business, which is the most technologically advanced in the world. That's going to be a great business. However, of course, with rates coming down, they'll make less money. Nonetheless, I still think the value is there. Now, I'd cut back XPO, as I said many months ago, they cut back all my positions, every single one of them. XPO was no exception to that, but it's still a position, and I'm just going to, you know, as of now, I'm going to, uh, to hold on to it. All right. So you get this negative pre Steve, thank you. I get this negative pre-announcement, okay. obviously, from FedEx, and you can see the ripple effects from UPS, XPO. Uh, anything really involved in that sector is going to be trading lower right now in overtime. When we come back, Altimeter Capital's Brad Gerstner is taking aim at Meta. We'll debate his take on that company, what it might mean for the stock in today's halftime overtime. And don't forget, you can catch us on the go by following the Closing Bell podcast on your favorite podcast app. Overtime's right back. Stock's falling again today, and our next guest says get ready for even more selling, but sees pockets of opportunity. Joining us now, Avery Sheffield, co-founder and CIO of Vantage Rock. Welcome back. It's nice to see you again. 
Pleasure to be uh, here. Let me just get your reaction quickly since I have you here to, to what FedEx just uh, delivered, pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make you feel all that optimistic about the economy at this moment. No, no. And, you know, this is something that we've actually been anticipating because, you know, as you well know, we follow the consumer sector very closely. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this massive inventory build so much earlier than anticipated. Certainly has led to a tough promotional environment, but also we've anticipated that this fall we we're actually going to see a lot less a lot less demand for deliveries because companies were bringing in goods so much earlier and that that would lead to, you know, a meaningful decline in rates. Um, and then also, of course, we've seen e-commerce be, growth be slower than anticipated. So with capacity expansion, that lets, leads less opportunity for pricing increases than we've had in the past. Yeah. So it does play into your overall thesis about the market. Uh, we did suggest you think we're going a fair amount lower. I, I, I think that certain stocks have a lot further to go and that um, many stocks, maybe all stocks, will be pulled down somewhat with it. I think that there'll be some great buying opportunities. But I think what um, what what I don't feel is as widely um, uh, discussed or, or thought at this point mm-hmm. is that there are a lot of companies out there that will never get back to maybe even the levels that they're at today after a further decline. That the conversation, many conversations about uh, you know when do we buy? Like how do we get back in? The market's going back up. Certain stocks, I do think, are like oversold for the long term, but others are are very much um, still dangerous um, to get involved what, in. What kinds of stocks are you specifically talking about right. here? So, I mean, so growth stocks, um, stocks, I mean, a lot of stocks, even in sectors like the software sector that have very high valuations that have traded on non-GAAP earnings for many years. Maybe they have like a good business, but not necessarily a good business model in terms of generating, generating real returns. Mm-hmm. And I think that as we start to see slowdowns in these companies, um, there's, there's a lot of risk and a downside ahead. I interviewed Brad Gerstner of Altimeter uh, earlier today. He suggested there's maybe 70 percent of those kinds of companies that will never see the light of day to where they they once were, that 30 percent may get back. Uh, They'll they'll in his words, I think he used the word grind. They'll grind it out and they'll get back. But 70 percent of those stocks which are once overvalued and came down a lot may not get back to those levels ever. I would agree that it it seems like it's probably at least 70 percent. And so and I think you're going to have a host of other companies that are um, have just traded at too high of valuations. So maybe 30 to 40 times earnings goes to 20, goes to 17 times earnings as the growth slows. And companies also, I think, are you know, something also to watch out for is if companies make big acquisitions at very high prices, like an encumber maybe in, end up having to take on debt as a result of that at some point in time. Like those are vulnerable points where the upside you know might not be there anymore. Leave us with an idea of, of something you like, uh, RGA? Yes, Tell me about RGA. Um, yes, yeah, so they are a life reinsurer. And so, as you could imagine, got really hit by COVID. Um, and the good news, of course, is that we're here speaking in person without masks. Um, COVID is, is reduced significantly. You have treatments like Paxlovid that mean that people, when they get it, are um, probably going to do much better. And as a result, um, uh, the, the earnings had been hit, but they're starting to come back. Um, it trades at about 10 times uh, expected uh, consensus for this year. We see, you know, mid-teens, mid-to-high-teens or more growth next year. And it's completely, you know, it's acyclical, right? It's an idiosyncratic risk. Um, so a good place to potentially hide out with appreciation potential um, longer term. I got gotcha. you. Uh, we got to leave it there. Uh, my apologies, and I appreciate your understanding. We had the FedEx news breaking that we had to react to there, but we'll talk to you again soon. That's uh, Vantage Rock's uh, Avery Sheffield joining us. Up next, we're tracking all the biggest movers in the OT. Christina Partsinovelos is standing by for us with that. Hi, Christina. Let's start with Boeing, planning to find new buyers since China won't pay up. And gamers are spending less on virtual currency at Roblox. I'll explain why after this very short break.
We're tracking the biggest movers in OT now. Christina Partsinevelos is here with that. Christina. Let's start with shares of Texas Instruments moving higher right now, up a half a percent after announcing it would increase its quarterly cash dividend 8% from $1.15 to $1.24 payable November 15th. That means the chipmaker has increased its dividend for the past 19 years straight. The company is also authorizing $15 billion in share buybacks, clearly a trend as of late across the board. Switching gears, Boeing moving slightly, let's see that, slightly lower. Yes, on the news, three-tenths of a percentage down uh, after it said it would find new buyers for more than 100 MAX jets originally built for China. So Associated Press reporting that China's aviation regulator never actually cleared those planes to fly after two, unfortunately, deadly crashes. Boeing hopes, though, that they can find new buyers and this will bring down their inventory levels. And lastly, shares of online gaming platform Roblox moving lower, over 1% lower after reporting its August metrics. Daily active users, yes, were up 24% year over year to 59.9 million. But average bookings per user, which is really just a fancy way of saying how much money players are spending on virtual currency, that was down about 14 to 16% year over year. Roblox blaming foreign currency fluctuations for roughly 4% of that drop in bookings. You can see the share price down over 1% right now. Scott. All right, Christina, thank you. Christina Partsinevelos. Coming up, a top cloud computing pick. One money manager getting bullish on one key name in that sector. That stock and the reason why is in our two-minute drill. It's coming up. In today's halftime overtime, a reality check for Meta and a new buyer of Tesla. Altimeter's Brad Gerstner taking aim at Meta's management and the transition, the transition to its new Metaverse business model. Gerstner also revealing that he's recently been buying shares of Tesla after being negative on that stock for a few years. Decatur Capital's Degas Wright just sold Meta, owns Tesla, joins us now. So, Degas, it's good to see you. Gerstner saying that he has, quote, grown quite frustrated uh, that management has done an absolutely lousy job of explaining the transition to the street. That transition, of course, about the metaverse. And he's speaking of meta, yeah. uh, which you just got out of. What do you make of what he said? Yeah. So, first of all, I'm coming to you from uh, New Mexico at the beautiful uh, Philmont Scott Ranch. And so what we looked at is that with meta, the leadership dynamic was between Zuckerberg and Sandberg. Um, Sandberg had the experience with the ads. She did. She developed ads for Google, and also she focused on policy and operation. Zuckerberg was able to focus on uh, engineering. Sandberg left in August, so now you have uh, Zuckerberg without Sandberg, and so that's a leadership challenge. And Gerster actually mentioned this. And so what happens now is that Zuckerberg is trying to change the business model because right now. Uh, Facebook or Meta gets about 97% of their revenues from ads. What Zuckerberg is trying to do is to change that business model to either a software as a uh, service or a cloud computing model and also a product model by selling Oculus, the VR headsets. So I'm really, I was very concerned about that because when we started looking at the leadership team at uh, Meta, most of those members have been through their whole career at Facebook or Meta. So there's no expertise in cloud computing or product sales among the leadership team. And that was very concerning for me as an investor. Okay. 
Thank you very much. Degas Wright joining us today. By the way, it's our last call to weigh in on our Twitter question. We're halfway through September. We want to know which of these beaten down names has the biggest upside ahead. Is it Adobe? Did that big deal today? NVIDIA, Nucor or Valero? You can head to at CNBC over time to vote. We're going to reveal the results when we come back. Welcome back to Overtime to the results of our Twitter question. We asked you which of these beaten down names this month has the biggest upside ahead. 63% of you saying NVIDIA, N-V-D-A, 63.6. Thank you. Time now for our two-minute drill. Joining me now, George C. He's chairman and founder of Annandale Capital. It's good to see you. I'd like to pick some stocks with you. You have a few names in front of me. Antero Resources. Tell our viewers why they should buy this one right now. Scott, the natural gas industry, and thanks for having me on, is, is just hated as hated could be. It's toxic, and you've got a company called Antero that is just doing everything right and generating tons of free cash flow, trading at about a three to four times free cash flow uh, multiple. I, I think Antero is going to generate at least $10 of free cash flow next year, and it might, it might generate as much as $15 of free cash flow if they keep buying back stock and it's a $40 stock. That's a clear okay. buy. All right. Uh, you want to stay in energy. Energy transfer. Tell me why. Yeah, yeah. energy transfer trades at about a 20% discount to the rest of the midstream sector. And the reason why is because their founder, Kelsey Warren, has been mistrusted by the street for years. And that's no longer an adequate reason not to own the stock. When they finish raising their dividend, it's probably going to have over a 10% yield. And they've got tons of free cash flow to buy back stock and pay down debt. And it's super cheap. It ought to be at least 17 bucks. Let's talk about technology for a moment, because the name that jumps out to me on your list today is Snowflake. Uh, a once high flyer came down to earth, if you want to put it to that way. Uh, Brad Gerstner of Altimeter was on with me today earlier. Largest position in that name. Thinks it's one of the rare high valuation stocks, or at least once really high valuation stocks uh, that had come down a lot that can grind it out and get back to maybe where it was relative to some others that were in that same predicament. Why do you like it here? Well, I think a leopard's got to be able to change out its spots occasionally. And I just gave you two value ideas. And now I'm going to give you a growth idea because Snowflake is growing so aggressively and is in such a good marketplace. And they're going to keep growing for many years to come. Is it a cheap stock? Absolutely not. It's still very expensive. But it's such a quality company. It's got such a good future ahead of itself. I I think it's a great buy for a small position right now. And if the market continues to suffer and weaken and goes down quite a bit further, build a large position over time. You got 25 seconds to tell me why I should buy Qualcomm. Because it's 10 times earnings. Management is is executing to a a very impressive degree, and they are going to buy back a lot of stock. It pays a reasonable dividend, and they're expanding into a whole lot of new markets. It's a no-brainer over the long term. All right, so you got an old tech like Qualcomm. You got a new tech like Snowflake uh, right at a time where technology stocks are under some serious pressure. We watched the Nasdaq have another tough day today. George, I'll talk to you soon. I appreciate it. That's George C. Annandale Capital joining us today. I hope everybody has a good evening. I'll see you back on the desk tomorrow. It does it for us. Fast Money begins right now. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.